Good evening, class. As usual, we have some music playing. I'm going to be quiet and let you listen and see if you can figure out what it is and why we might be listening to it. Any guesses about what that is? It is a favorite Easter carol, very often used as an anthem, that's entitled This Joyful Easter Tide. And this particular version was once again from the King's College Cambridge Choir. And one of the things that I love about this particular anthem is it puts the emphasis on how incredibly important Jesus's resurrection is to our faith as Christians, that it really is the foundation. And the anthem quotes that verse from St. Paul that our faith is in vain if Jesus has not risen. So that is one of the topics that will come up in Screwtape this evening. So before we jump in, let me start us off with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this book, The Screwtape Letters. We thank you for all of the wisdom that it contains about what it means to follow you and all of the truth of scripture that Lewis weaves through uh, an understanding of how Satan attempts to assault us. Lord, we pray that you would use our time together help draw us more and more into the things of your kingdom, that we might stand firm against the assaults of the enemy. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are uh, at home listening and have the ability to follow along with the PowerPoint, please feel free to do that. The PowerPoint is up on the church website. Uh, if not, uh, what I would encourage you to do is to listen and then go back and look at the PowerPoint later on. And what we will do, as usual, is to begin with uh, reciting our scripture verse that comes from Ephesians about what it means to put on the whole armor of God. So I'd encourage you to say this with me. If you don't have this memorized, uh, it's a great verse to commit to memory. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and for your shoes, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
and all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and as we have said before this verse is so appropriate because it reminds us about the battle that we're in it reminds us that we have an enemy who is after us and that it would behoove us to be prepared and not to just be prepared uh, defensively but to be prepared to stand firm uh, to hold our ground uh, to be proactive in resisting the wiles of the devil so again as we come to class it's always good to be reminded about why we're here and first and foremost the reason we're here is because we want to learn what it means to follow Jesus but more specifically we want to learn through this book lessons about how to understand the battle that we're in lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview lessons on the psychology of temptation lessons on habits to help us deepen our faith in Christ and lessons on living a boldly Christian life a life that is full of the presence of the Holy Spirit one in which we are transformed by the Spirit's power and we are available for the Spirit's use to be salt and light in this world and we've talked many many times each week about how important habits are and these habits that we incorporate in our lives through this book um, through the study of scripture more importantly and through understanding what it means to know Jesus Christ are the things that change our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that we begin more and more to understand what it means to love God with all our heart soul mind and strength to love our neighbors as ourselves and to be citizens of the kingdom of God because if we don't cultivate these habits we are being pressed on by the world and by our culture all of the time and without willing it without our own uh, even being aware sometimes we will be transformed by the world if we are not transformed by these habits that are rooted in the scriptures so looking back a few letters you'll remember that we've been in this section where Lewis is talking about love and sex and marriage and he devotes a long time to this topic because as Screwtape says it is a fruitful area for the work of the enemy and as we've said many times before it's almost eerie how Lewis is so prescient so prophetic about what was happening in the world because we remember he was writing uh, almost 80 years ago and if you think about what's happened in the area of love and sex and marriage 
since the 1940s, it really is quite breathtaking the way that the views that were rooted in the Judeo-Christian understanding of reality have largely been supplanted uh, by new trends in our culture, which of course is exactly the advice that Screwtape is giving to Wormwood to undermine those ideas uh, because when the Christian, Judeo-Christian idea of love and sex and marriage is thrown out, what replaces it is something that leads to despair because it is something that is utterly self-focused. So going back to letter 19, the first habit, seek to understand God as the creator of love and daily abide in the love of God. This means that love is something that's given it is something that is not earned. It's not something that we produce out of ourselves. But remember that it is God's gift. Secondly, share God's love with others, especially those who do not believe it or do not understand it. We live in a world that is full of despair and loneliness, where love is something that you have to earn. Uh, it is something that is fickle. It is something that deproves on depends on whether you are enough on a given day for someone to value you. And the Christian understanding is totally, totally different. And therefore, it is good news in this hurting world and one that we as Christians need to share. Jesus says, by this, all men will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Thirdly, resolve to take any state of mind or feeling and experience it through the perspective of the kingdom of God so as to grow closer to God. This means that we need to understand our feelings not as things that are inexorably to be followed, but instead as things that happen that we are to weigh through the perspective and the lens and the filter of the kingdom of God. It's another way of saying we are not animals. We are not merely creatures of instinct. We have souls. Uh, as Screwtape says, we're disgusting hybrids, half spirit, half body. And because of that, these instincts, feelings, need to be filtered through the perspective of God's word and his kingdom. And then fourthly, understanding marriage is God's invention only to be pursued in a Christian context and not just because of feelings of being in love. Our culture has glorified this idea of feelings of being in love, and Lewis emphasizes this over and over again in these letters uh, about marriage and love. If you can make people believe that feelings are the only basis of what love is, you have succeeded in redefining what love is supposed to be all about. Because feelings, wonderful as they are when they're good feelings, are fickle. And as Lewis says in many other places, uh, they are often the result of how much sleep we got, what we ate for dinner the night before, what the weather is like, whether people have been nice to us during the day. They are not things that can form the foundation of any sort of helpful reality. So from letter 20, Hold fast to the truth that Satan's attacks don't last forever and stand firm against yielding. Remember in that letter, Wormwood has goofed up because he has attacked for so long on the patient that God finally intervened and stopped the attack. And that of course made the patient aware that Satan is not all powerful. So the idea is that as Christians, 
One of the things that is so important for us to remember is that Satan is not invincible, that temptation will not last forever, and that God has defeated Satan, and that when we resist the devil and pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, the devil will flee from us. Second, cultivate an identity that's grounded in your being made in the image of God and resist cultural pressure to define yourself primarily in terms of sexual desire. We've talked about how one of the chief battles in our culture, particularly in the past few years, is this battle about identity. And at root, it comes down to the question of whether God is the creator or whether we are our own creator. Of course, the scriptural view is we are made in the image of God. Even the breath of life that we have comes from God himself, and that every aspect of who we are is finely and precisely designed by God. But the cultural view is that we are our own creator, that we have these bodies, um, but our desires and our biology, um, all of those things are just information and that we can choose what we want to be. We can choose to be a different gender. We can choose what we want to love or how we want to love it. Um, all of those things are totally up to us. And the problem with that is that the Christian view is that not only are we made in God's image, but that after the fall, Jesus came to redeem us and that part of our sanctification is being remade remade into the image of how God created us to be, so that our joy and fulfillment come not in pursuing every desire that we have, but leaning into who God made us to be. Thirdly, understand that physical beauty is fleeting and resist on focusing on outward appearance and being seduced by societal notions of what constitutes beauty. This is something that is so difficult because we live in a culture that is all about how we look, how we're looking, if we're looking young, if we are looking attractive, if we are looking uh, in line with the latest fashions about things. And fashions about beauty change dramatically. One of the things that is an interesting exercise, if you are familiar with the Hunger Games series of books and the movie that came out a number of years ago. When that movie first came out, the people that are uh, living in the capital in that movie seem to be dressed and have hair and everything else that is really outlandish, almost like something out of a sci-fi movie and not something that we would think of as beautiful. But there's a whole obsession in the capital about grooming and beauty. And the interesting thing is that what looked so bizarre a few years ago is now pretty much mainstream and often what people are seeking to emulate. So these standards of beauty are fleeting. And scripture reminds us that God does not look on the outward appearance, but looks on the heart. And the heart is what we are to look upon and to seek to value and to cultivate beauty there, not just in our outward appearance. Fourthly, cultivate a scriptural perspective on the opposite sex and be wary of objectification of the bodies of women or men. As we talked about in previous weeks, objectification of people's bodies is rampant in our culture. It is all over the media and advertising and movies. And as Christians, we are called to reject that. 
we are called to remember that each person is infinitely full of dignity because they are made in the image of God and that their bodies are not to be looked after with lust or even uh, any kind of desire, but that we are instead to be mindful that they are people who are inhabited by a soul who can go to be with God forever or who can go to be away from God forever and that our actions toward them and our words toward them are things that help them toward one or the other of those destinations. Fifthly, hold fast to a Christian view of marriage based on scriptural standards and not based just on feelings or lust. In our culture, marriage is so often about feelings and it is viewed as a disposable commodity to be entered into, if at all, only for as long as it feels good or makes us feel satisfied. And if the other person is not meeting our needs, then we should move on until we find that person who's our soulmate. And of course, the problem with this is that we are created in God's image so that he is the only one who can meet our needs. And when we put that burden on any other person, it is an impossible weight and will cause the relationship to collapse. Then from letter 21, that great letter about peevishness, one that is perhaps, at least for me, a little convicting in these times of social distancing and quarantine, where it's all too easy to complain, to be peevish, to be easily offended. So habits to annoy the devil cultivate good humor and kindness and refuse to get into peevishness, flee from it, work actively on being calm, maintaining your sense of humor, and practicing kindness. Secondly, view life in each day, each hour, each moment as a gift from God rather than as an entitlement. This is something where we have to really do what Colossians says about setting our minds on things above where Christ is. Because I think all of us are deeply affected by the setting aside of our agendas and our plans by this pandemic. And so we don't tend to view each day as a gift. We may feel like it's Groundhog Day, that we're getting the same day over and over again. And we really would like to get our life back. Thank you very much. But that is a view that's rooted in entitlement, not one that gives thanks for the blessings and looks for the silver lining in the midst of each day and indeed each moment we have. Thirdly, cultivate a framework for your life that is based on stewardship rather than ownership as the underlying principle. We are all too prone to think that we own everything about our lives, ourselves, our bodies, our interests, our income, our assets, all those things we tend to think that we've earned them. But of course, the truth is that everything we have is given to us by God, and we are only stewards, not owners. And one day, our life on this earth will be done. The related habit right after that, fourthly, consider daily, daily. And remember, consider is that big word, think about with deliberation. 
Consider daily the fact that as a Christian you are not your own, but you are in service to the Lord. Remember that your body and the breath of life within it are not your own, but God's creation and possession, and do not surrender them to Satan's conquest. This is going along with this idea of stewardship, but it's even more that we not only are given this life by God, but we are to be living it for him, in service to him, according to his priorities, not our own. And then lastly, be wary of using that word mine or thinking of anything in those terms, especially God. We are by nature possessive folks. We see things as ours and we are often proud of the things that we have or that we have accomplished, but we are to be reminded as Christians that everything that we have is a gift and we are only custodians or stewards of it. We are to hold lightly to those things that have been given to us and we are to look for how to use them in the service of the kingdom of God. There's that great section in letter 21 that's worth a reread about how using the word mine is very tricky and that Satan loves to get in there and help us think about when we say those boots are mine, that it's not much of a stretch to say that dog is mine or that child is mine or even God is mine in the sense that it becomes our possession that we can do with what we want. So avoid that and cultivate that idea of stewardship. And that brings us to last week's letter, um, letter 22, which is such a rich letter in so many ways. And I do hope you took the time to listen to John Cleese read it. Uh, it's a brilliant performance, but he does such a great job of bringing out the truth that is in this letter. And the first habit is to seek deep Christian commitment as the most important quality in dating relationships. Now, if you go on any of the dating apps that are out there or watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or whatever is the uh, reality show du jour about all of that, uh, deep Christian commitment is not one of the things that comes up. But what Screwtape shows us in this letter is that the best way to annoy the devil is to enter in to a dating relationship or a marriage that Christ is profoundly the foundation of. Screwtape rants and raves in this letter in a way that he hasn't in any of the others because this relationship is the worst thing that could happen to the patient other than having become a Christian in the first place. And you'll remember that part of the reason he gets so infuriated is the impenetrable cloud uh, has come over the patient and this girl uh, because of their mutual love for Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the second habit of living joyfully into the bounty of pleasures that God has created. You will remember that in the letter, Screwtape gets really disgusted and says, God is a hedonist at heart. And then he quotes from Psalm 46, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, to which Screwtape replies, ugh, 
He's disgusted by it. But the pleasures that God has given us when we use them in the right way are a great reminder of the joy that there is in the kingdom of heaven. And one of the great tricks that Satan likes to play on Christians is to convince us that somehow being somber and dull and boring and just quiet and never really enjoying anything is somehow more Christian than being exuberantly joyful about appreciating the pleasures that God has created. So this letter uh, shows us that a great way to annoy the devil is to enjoy those pleasures. And then we also learn um, from this letter how furious Screwtape is about this Christian home. He hates the fact that in this household where this girl lives, that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is all around everything. It taints the people who work there, the gardener. It taints visitors who have come and spent time there. It taints even the cat and dog. And Screwtape says this is just a terrible thing because the impenetrable cloud, the impenetrable mystery, fills the whole house because they are loving each other in a selfless way that is oriented towards serving one another instead of seeing what they can get out of one another or seeing how they can make the other people serve them. Screwtape talks about how it is a matter of first principles in hell that no one loves disinterestedly. And what drives him crazy in this household is that it appears that the people are doing that, but Screwtape can't even get his head around that. So there has to be some reason that the people are treating each other so nicely that's ultimately selfish, but he can't figure out what it is and it makes him nuts. But it is a great reminder to us of the power of the Christian home the power of a household where there is beauty and tranquility and joy and the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are in evidence. People who live without that kind of uh, atmosphere are shocked in a good way when they come into it. And it can be one of the chief gifts that we have in practicing hospitality to draw others in to this love. Fourthly, glory in the beauty and wonder of music. You'll remember that great line where Screwtape says, music and silence, how I detest them both. One day we will make the whole universe into a noise and that every scrap of heavenly silence and music will be drowned out by the infernal noise of hell. And it's a great reminder to us that music is one of the few things we know from the scriptures that will last out of this life into the next, that there is music in heaven, beautiful music, and that when we listen to music, music especially that honors God, we will find that our souls are nourished and that we are lifted up into God's kingdom. Next, we are also to embrace the beauty of silence. And again, this is an area where it's remarkable how Lewis foresaw what was happening. The 1940s were much quieter than the life that we find ourselves living in 2020. 
Can you imagine Lewis's reaction if he walked down a street and saw all of the people with earbuds and with their faces in front of screens or people in restaurants looking at their phones at table together rather than talking with one another or people even in church chattering all the time with no reverence, no holy silence anywhere. Scripture commends silence. It is a place where we can be still and know that God is who he says he is. It is a place where we can worship and we can contemplate and we can listen for the still small voice of God. But for most of us, silence has been crowded out of our lives. So one way to annoy the devil is to put silence back in, to find times in our daily schedule to be quiet, to listen for God, to practice silence proactively. As we said last week, there's that great quotation from Mother Teresa, we need silence to touch the soul. And we are starved for it in our culture. It is something that can be a great blessing if we will embrace it. And then one of the other beautiful things about the letter is the whole idea of uh, rejecting the noise of hell. If you find that you are surrounded by noise all the time, you need to figure out how to take a detour and eliminate some of it. Many of us have developed habits of turning on the TV or the radio or um, Spotify or whatever it is whenever we're not actually with someone else or sometimes even when we are. And this is a habit we need to think about because noise distracts us. It's interesting, one of the principles in restaurant design that is new um, in the past 15 years or so is that many restaurant designers intentionally make a lot of ambient noise, a lot of hard surfaces, because people don't like to go to restaurants that are too quiet because silence is awkward. It used to be that people appreciated silent restaurants, that restaurants that were quiet, that maybe had a harp playing gently in the background, uh, were restaurants that were the nicest, most wonderful special occasion places. But now, even finding a restaurant that doesn't have a TV screen can be very difficult. So I encourage you in this habit to reject being surrounded by noise all the time. And then lastly, remember that transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit, not of your own efforts or the life force. Uh, May the 4th was Star Wars Day, uh, sort of a pun on May the 4th, May the 4th be with you. Uh, but it's a reminder that for many people in our culture, that whole idea of the life force and the primal goo has replaced the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who should be transforming us. Um, and that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and the Word of God reveals to us what it means to be transformed, to look at Jesus as he has shown in the Scriptures, and to know that the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to make us more like him. Well, that brings us to letter 23. Letter 23 is another one 
that is full of wisdom and touches on some really important things. So if you have your book, uh, get that out. Uh, get ready to highlight, underline, and mark up. Here we go. My dear Wormwood, through this girl and her disgusting family, the patient is now getting to know more Christians every day, and very intelligent Christians too. For a long time, it will be quite impossible to remove spirituality from his life. Very well then, we must corrupt it. No doubt you have often practiced transforming yourself into an angel of light as a parade ground exercise. Now is the time to do it in the face of the enemy. The world and the flesh have failed us. A third power remains, and success of this third kind is the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or debauchee. Looking round your patient's new friends, I find that the best point of attack would be the borderline between theology and politics. Several of his new friends are very much alive to the social implications of their religion. That in itself is a bad thing, but good can be made out of it. You will find that a good many Christian political writers think that Christianity began going wrong and departing from the doctrine of its founder at an early stage. Now this idea must be used by us to encourage once again the conception of a historical Jesus to be found by clearing away later accretions and perversions and then to be contrasted with the whole Christian tradition in the last generation, we promoted the construction of such a historical Jesus on liberal and humanitarian lines. We are now putting forth a new historical Jesus based on Marxian catastrophe and revolutionary lines. The advantages of these constructions, which we intend to change every 30 years or so, are manifold. In the first place, they all tend to direct men's devotion to something which does not exist. For each historical, Jesus is unhistorical. The documents say what they say and cannot be added to by each new historical Jesus, which therefore has to be got out of them by suppression at one point and exaggeration at another. And by that sort of guessing, brilliant, is the adjective we teach the humans to apply to it, on which no one would risk 10 shillings in ordinary life, but which is enough to produce a new crop of new Napoleons, new Shakespeare's, new Swift's, and every publisher's autumn list. In the second place, all such constructions place the importance of their historical Jesus in some peculiar theory he's supposed to have promulgated. He has to be a great man in the modern sense of the word, one standing at the terminus of some centrifugal and unbalanced line of thought, a crank vending a panacea. We thus distract men's minds from who he is and what he did. We first make him solely a teacher, and then conceal the very substantial agreement between his teachings and those of other great moral teachers. 
For humans must not be allowed to notice that all the great moralists are sent by the enemy not to inform men, but to remind them, to restate the primeval moral platitudes against our continual concealment of them. We make the sophists. He raises up a Socrates to answer them. Our third aim is by these constructions to destroy the devotional life. For the real presence of the enemy, otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a merely probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, one who spoke a strange language and died a long time ago. Such an object cannot, in fact, be worshipped. Instead of the creator adored by its creature, you soon have merely a leader acclaimed by a partisan, and finally a distinguished character approved by a judicious historian. And fourthly, besides being unhistorical in the Jesus it depicts, religion of this kind is false to history in another sense. No nation and few individuals are really brought into the enemy's camp by the historical study of the biography of Jesus, simply as biography. Indeed, materials for a full biography have been withheld from men. The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine redemption. Operating on a sense of sin, which they already had. And sin, not against some fancy dress law produced as a novelty by a great man, but against the old, platitudinous, universal moral law, which they had been taught by their nurses and mothers. The Gospels come later and were written not to make Christians, but to edify Christians already made. The historical Jesus, then, however dangerous he may seem to be to us at some particular point, is always to be encouraged. About the general connection between Christianity and politics, our position is more delicate. Certainly, we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life, for the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do want, and want very much, to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement but failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands, and then work him on to the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. For the enemy will not be used as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might just as well think they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest chemist shop. Fortunately, it is quite easy to coax humans round this little corner. 
Only today I found a passage in a Christian writer where he recommends his own version of Christianity on the ground that only such a faith can outlast the death of old cultures and the birth of new civilizations. You see the rift? Believe this, not because it is true, but for some other reason. That's the game. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, once again, there's a lot here, and we're going to be the bird doing the bird's eye view quickly here. So the first habit is get to know and spend time with deeply committed, intelligent Christians. Screwtape is appalled by these Christians being together, and he says it means that the result of that is you're not going to be able to tempt the patient away from his spirituality. In other words, he gives up the battle and realizes the only thing he can do is to try to corrupt it, which is a message to us that Christian fellowship, real Christian fellowship, deep Christian fellowship, where we're loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, threatens the devil to the core. Again, from 1 Corinthians, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good character. And then this wonderful part from Philippians. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then from Second Peter, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And then from Romans, so then let us pursue what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Part of the interesting thing about this is there's so much in scripture about fellowship, about iron sharpening iron, all of that. But one of the diseases of the church in our age is that we mistake being in the same room together with other Christians as Christian fellowship. And this I think is partially why Screwtape rails against the patient meeting other intelligent Christians. The presumption is that people are going to be talking about their faith, encouraging one another, speaking psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, doing what leads for mutual edification and upbuilding. It's a great challenge to us to not only be in the same room, although even that's a challenge right now, but to be edifying each other, to looking for how we can build up, encourage, help one another mature in our faith. And the second habit, be watchful about mixing theology and politics. Now this is a slippery slope because on the one hand, Christians are to stand for social justice. But as Screwtape points out, one of the easiest ways to get a Christian off course and to totally thwart the witness of the church is to get the gospel all tied up with a political agenda instead of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself in Matthew says, therefore render to Caesar what is Caesar's 
and to God the things that are God's. And then in John 6, where they are trying to carry Jesus away and make him the king, which seems like that would be great, right? The Roman Empire makes any problems we have with our government look small. The Roman Empire was cruel and unjust in many ways. There were no rights. Uh, there was rampant immorality. People were being slain. Uh, there's no due process, any of those things. And so they were coming to take Jesus to make him king. And did Jesus say, okay, great, let's get on with that? No, look what he says. John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. One of the most striking things about Jesus's ministry is that here he is ministering in an occupied country where there is an oppressor um, oppressing the native people. And Jesus says virtually nothing about that oppressive government. All of his focus is on the souls of individuals, um, on meeting their needs and on pointing them to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom of God. Then remember also Jesus's words before Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. My friends, it is all too easy when we embrace a political ideology over and above the gospel to make the gospel as a tool and then the people who disagree with our politics find the gospel offensive and we find ourselves in that terrible position of having dishonored our Lord and Savior. Thirdly, beware of new constructions of the historical Jesus. We live in an era that is full of this. There are so many different conceptions of the historical Jesus that it will boggle your mind. But first, some scripture about this. Uh, here is a great verse from 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And then from 2 Timothy 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There are all kinds of crazy ideas out there about who Jesus is. And one of the craziest ones uh, that you might have heard a couple of years ago, there was a big uproar um, in the media because they claimed that some archaeologists had found the tomb of Jesus um, and that there were likely bones within it. And of course, that would mean that Jesus did not rise from the dead, um, that his bones were buried here on this earth, and that the resurrection was a lie. But the interesting thing is a lot of liberal Christian scholars got on the media, got on the news shows, and said, oh, well, it doesn't make any difference. 
it doesn't make any difference. You know, the resurrection is a metaphor, and, you know, Jesus' teaching is all about embracing um, your identity, um, self-actualization. It doesn't really change anything. Well, that shows you how much in la-la land some of these purported scholars are. There are all sorts of crazy ideas out there about Jesus, and he is uh, pressed into different molds to try to be the uh, Marxist revolutionary or to try to be the patron of this cause or that cause. But the only clear revelation about Jesus is in the scriptures, in his life and ministry, and his presence in the sacraments and relationship with him. So we are to reject these things, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, which means that we should go on to this next habit, which is to relentlessly focus on our relationship with Jesus, worshiping him, entering his real presence, and not just thinking about his teaching. Jesus' teaching is sublime, but that is not the core of why we worship Jesus. We worship Jesus because he's God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the creator of the world, co-eternal, consubstantial, all of those great things. And it is so important to remember that as wonderful as Jesus' teaching is, we are not to just know about him, we are to know him. We are to be in relationship with him, to share and fellowship about that. And that's part of the reason that Screwtape gets so bent out of shape about this household, because that's what the people are talking about there. They're worshiping Jesus and they know him. As St. Paul said, for I resolved to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then as Jesus himself said in that great high priestly prayer uh, after the Last Supper and right before his arrest, and this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, to know, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is so important because it is really easy with the best of intentions to get focused on learning about Jesus, reading good books, even reading scripture, but to forget about knowing him. And so this is a great reminder to enter into his presence, to worship, to listen, to be about seeking after him and his kingdom. The next habit, the fifth one, is hold fast to the centrality of Jesus' resurrection and God's plan of redemption as the core of your faith. As Lewis says in this letter, and he's absolutely right about this, the first Christians were converted not by the Gospels because they weren't written yet. They were converted by the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And the resurrection was so incredible that it spread like wildfire. And even in the city where people had witnessed Jesus's death and the government and officials had conducted everything leading to Jesus's death, the disciples proclaimed boldly that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And no one could argue there was not 
a countervailing force saying, no, he wasn't. Here's the body. No one could produce the body or any credible theory to explain. Uh, I commend to you Jeff Miller's Easter sermon about looking at the evidence about the resurrection. And this brings us back to that song at the beginning, this joyful Easter tide away with sin and sorrow, uh, for Christ the crucified has been raised. And he, they talk in this song about how if Christ had not been raised, our faith would be in vain, but Christ is risen and because of that there's joy and salvation. The gates of hell have been closed, the gates of heaven have been opened. And this uh, great verse from 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 15, uh, which we heard on Easter, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then again from that same chapter, starting at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But of course, Paul goes on to say that Christ has been raised, and that changes everything. But I want you to notice in these verses that it talks about two things together all the time. Not just Jesus's resurrection, but that Jesus died to redeem us from our sins. This is not self-actualization. This is not having a more uh, powerful presence of our own gifts in our lives. This is not about achieving our goals. This is about that we were dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And as we often hear from Jeff in Bible study, uh, dead people can't do anything. But Jesus did. God raised Jesus from the dead. He redeemed us from our sins. And that these two things are the core of our faith, not some cause, not some political position. And these things are the good news of the gospel, that, that we have been raised with Christ that Jesus died for our sins, and that when we trust him, when we believe in him, we are transferred from this kingdom of darkness to his everlasting kingdom. Which brings us to the sixth habit. Live proactively each day, each day in the understanding of Christ's kingdom as the truth with a capital T and the overarching reality with a capital R, rather than being seduced of seeing Christianity as a means to an end. All too often when we see things that are wrong, we think as Christians we can fix them. And that's often a laudable instinct, and sometimes there are things that we can fix um, through 
using the gifts and resources God has given us. But that is not the goal of our lives. And everything that we look at, we need to sift through the lens of Scripture and God's kingdom and the Holy Spirit to see what we are being called to do. All too often, we get obsessed with a cause or a political position, and we forget about Jesus. Um, we mow down people who disagree with us or with whom we disagree um, and see them as evil rather than as people made in the image of God, but sadly uh, led away by the sin that pervades our world. We need to reclaim this idea that we are part of Christ's kingdom, and that is central to who we are. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This comes even before our daily bread, and this understanding about God's kingdom and living into it is more important than any cause. Listen to what Jesus himself says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Therefore, in Hebrews, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now let me hasten to add that as Christians, we are to be all about doing good deeds. Doing good deeds flows naturally from being part of the kingdom of heaven, of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. But remember what Jesus says, that you should do your good deeds before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our good deeds, our positions that we hold should be done in such a way that they bring glory to God. We may be persecuted, we may be hounded, but we should not be viewed as people who are uh, filled with hate or who are using our faith as a means to an end. Because the only things that are eternal are God's kingdom and those whom God has made in his image, and of course, God himself. So this 23rd letter is full of great wisdom about what it means to live Christianly in these times, to be focused on Jesus's death and resurrection, that he was crucified to redeem us from our hopeless state as sinners, to rejoice in that, to live into fellowship that will help us grow, where we can edify one another, where we can build up the body of Christ, and that as we love one another and seek to serve this broken and hurting world, others may be drawn within the reach of Jesus's saving embrace. Let's close with that passage that uh, is from the eighth letter of Screwtape, but sums up one of the best ways to annoy the devil. 
Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a world where every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, we confess to you how often we are consumed with things other than your kingdom, how often we focus on things other than your dying for our sins to save us and the incredible power of your resurrection from the dead that should turn our hearts to perpetual praise and worship. Lord, we pray that you would so help us to focus on your love for us, that we would be able to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to live deeply into real and edifying Christian fellowship with other Christians, that we might be motivated to serve with our whole heart you, our Lord and Savior, and to serve those made in your image who are broken by sin in this broken world, that you alone might have the glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be with you. I look forward to seeing you next week, and I commend to you uh, reading and meditating on this letter and the scriptures and these habits. God bless you.